Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. We mentioned yesterday Adam Posen was with us. PhD from Harvard. He was lights out, I thought. And one of the reasons we had Dr. Posen on is Dr. Furman of Harvard, teacher of Act 10, which is the definitive economics course there at Harvard. Mankey used to throw chalk at people on it. And the, the answer is that was on globalization. That was on all the dynamics that are out there. And we've got a guy to start us off strong in this hour. Lisa, why don't you bring in not Kenneth Rogoff, but Bradley Rogoff, who, you know, I, I can understand why people got the two of them confused in economics, but why don't you bring in <laughs> Brad Rogoff on this bond mess he and Barclays rock? I had Feldstein as my Act 10 uh, professor at, at Harvard, actually, so I'm, I'm dating back before But Mankiw. I wonder what Marty Feldstein would say of this crisis. He would say we have to clear the market, clear out the losers, wouldn't he? I think that's probably about that's right. That's probably yeah. about right. We're not doing that right now, from what I can tell. <laughs> well, but Brad, how do you make sense right now as the head of FIC Research over at Barclays? How do you understand whether the market is just simply wrong to price in both rate hikes and some sort of disinflation that continues? Yeah, I, I think well, we don't agree with that. I'll start with that. I, I think we expect, yes, could there be rate hikes coming when you get to 2020, uh, rate, rate cuts coming in 2024? Sure, right? But we think there's going to be one more hike uh, this summer. Um, and it is hard to marry, I think you guys were just alluding to it, where equities are, which don't seem to go down. And when you look at what the market's pricing in, in terms of eventual cuts later this year. Now, Lisa, you were kind of alluding to some of the stuff around banks. And Look, this is a banking crisis, but the reason, you know, if we're, I think we're calling it that, I guess, at this point, but the reason we got there is very different than a lot of other banking crises. It wasn't because of bad assets, right? It was because of duration, really, more than anything. I do think there's a little bit of a distinction between that, and, and I guess if you had to choose your crises, I'd probably rather have this one. But there's also a distinction between the idea of bank failures. Yep. And the idea of credit materially constrained and more suddenly than it has been in the past. How do you draw that distinction in terms of how to price that into a market that's looking for either 2008 or all clear? See, see that, that, is, that is the difference, right? Is maybe right now we can say we're clear of the crisis that we went through, you know, especially the last couple of weeks. But it has consequences still. And, and those consequences don't have to be 2008, I think, to your point those consequences can be slower growth. And whether we get to, you were alluding to some forecasts of 
a, a modest recession in the back half of this year or early next year. Some people have that in or just really low near zero growth, which is what we're kind of closer to. Mm-hmm. Those, those have a big impact and also probably aren't that consistent with where equities are today, right? I had a guy just email in. He's watching the show on JetBlue Airlines. I think it's on DirecTV. Thank you for DirecTV and JetBlue for putting us on <laughs> across the nation. But he's got a really important question. And that is, okay, we had low-rate free lunch for decades, and now we're back here. Is this rate regime behavior forward like what you and I studied, or is it something new, this new higher-rate regime? Well, I, I think that, yeah, if, we don't have to go back that far to have a rate regime like this, right? We can go back 15 years, a little bit more than 15 years ago, and have that. The difference, I think, is that prior to that, we didn't have the really low rate regime. So I, I, don't, I don't think it's just the fact that we have this, I mean, some might argue, more normal um, as opposed to high rate regime right now. I think what it is, is you had that period of such low rates. So then you, it leads to so many assets and fixed income specifically pricing at a substantial discount. And that leads to the disconnect that led to the problems that we saw in, in banks. So I, I, I do think it's a low rate regime that's causing the problem as opposed to the current rate regime. The, the, the whole financial system, and I'm going to go back to Chris Whalen's glorious one volume on the American financial system and crisis as well. So I got a guy on JetBlue or whatever airline they're on watching this show, and what it signals here, Bradley, is the fear that's out there. Should we fear this new rate regime? I, I, as I said, I, I don't know that we need to fear the current rate regime, also because by having hiked the way the Fed has – they do have some room now to actually, through non-extraordinary policy, have an impact if we get to a place where inflation's come down a bit, let's say, you know, later this year, early next year, um, and growth has come down. So I think in that sense, you'd almost have, you know, more fear if this was happening and rates were at zero today, right? I, I think that could be I quite problematic. I strongly agree. At least to me, this is the heart of the matter and there's so many younger people who didn't study Martin Feldstein a million years ago where can we celebrate that this is maybe normal with proper incentives of capital versus Mr. Rogoff's comment there on zero. Well, I would argue that we, it's really too <clears throat> soon to, set, to tell. And I think that to your point, Brad, and this to me is really the key point, it's one thing to have a normal rate of uh, interest. It's another thing to do it after years and years of 0% <clears throat> rates that inflated assets and caused leverage to build up at a rate that might be infeasible for companies based on their business model. So how do you discern what seems like something that gives you income versus something that will crimp companies cause higher defaults and create someone to charge a much higher risk premium. It's very interesting because what did we all expect? And I'm sure you had a lot of people on this uh, show say it. Well, how, how are the, these Fed hikes going to impact the economy? Where are we going to see the problems? Well, the answer was going to be, oh, maybe it's going to be the consumer, for, for example, right? It's going to be higher levered assets and, and credit, right? The world that I spend a lot of my time in. It turns out it was the safest assets that led to the first part of it, right? And I think that's what you're getting to, Lisa. There will eventually be some impact, right, on those riskier assets, things, you know, you know, lower rated, high yield bonds and, and all of those things. But just like 2020 is helpful in the sense of, and I know it's hard to say this looking backwards, but there are companies that were higher levered, that were problematic, they defaulted then. And not as much excess built in the system. So I think just like that, having this little bit of a preview, I, I, I do think that even though we will see defaults come up and all of that stuff, 
I don't think it'll be as extreme. So this, to me, is one of the big questions, especially with the banking issues that we've seen. Is this perhaps froth that we've already seen pushed out of the system, <clears throat> or is there another shoe to drop? Where would you look for that other shoe to drop? Yeah, I, I, and I think you know it's a question of just you know from how from how far up you're dropping that shoe, right? Like, so there will be eventual impact in terms of okay, if banks are lending less that has to have an impact mm. on corporate America. I do think we come into this fundamentally in a pretty good spot, right? And so we don't expect the normal, you know, recession default rates are 10, 12% that you've seen, right? We expect it probably be more like half that. Um, however, th there's other areas, right? You know, if you think about the, the increase in rates, commercial real estate is the one that's coming up quite frequently right oh, now. And we should extend the interview. Yeah. Uh, that's why I came into the studio. <laughs> um, and, and that's what, one where obviously with cap rates have to move when, when rates move. Um, and so I, I think there are a lot of other areas, and that has an right. impact, too, because people hold that on balance sheet. We've got 30 seconds left, which is a perfect time to dive into this. Commercial real estate, challenged, right? Yeah, I, I think it is. You know, we're pretty focused on office um, as being the area we're most concerned about. And, you know, we think the peak to trough there could be up to 30%. Brad wow. Rogoff, thank you so much. Bradley Rogoff is with Barclays. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. One of the things we missed here is a data check on Europe. It was quite a 10 days for Europe, and we're thrilled to bring you this morning. Katrina Dudley, portfolio manager at Franklin Mutual Series, doesn't describe her true European portfolio expertise. Are you optimistic about Europe, Ms. Dudley? Um, I think that if we look at what happened last week, you know, Europe actually was kind of contained until the end of last week from the banking crisis, which was really started in the United States. And I think that that was a positive. But towards the end of last week, we saw what was happening in the U.S. kind of move into the European markets, and we saw some downward pressure in those Euro those European banking stocks. Um, as I look at Europe, I think, however, that the structural drivers that we've been talking about for now a couple of months 
yields continue to underpin that market. So we can just continue to be optimistic. When we're optimistic, we have to mop up a Swiss banking regime. I thought over the weekend, particularly the FT had some nice articles showing the Swiss people rebelling against a Swiss bank bailout of, of, of Credit Suisse as well. Does that carry over in the financial section in Europe to where there's a huge tension between people, governments and the banking industry? I think there's been a lot of tension in the European banking industry already. I think that we need to understand that the way that the Eurozone is constructed, constructed is it's a series of countries and each of those countries has a central bank that will support that in-country banking system. We saw that with Deutsche Bank. Um, we've seen that support come out for Germany, for example. We've seen it, as you described, with Credit Suisse and with UBS and the Swiss National Bank state stepping in as well. So you will see that on a country basis. And it's a real reflection of the fact that Europe is just a series of countries that have come together to create the Eurozone, but those nationalistic interests still exist. There's a larger question here underpinning some of the banking stress. Are we at the end of rate hiking cycles that have been the fastest on record? Katrina, what's your view? I think that the Fed is very data dependent and they're also watching that PCE number that is coming out on Friday. Um, I think that they'll be as you know, glued to their Bloomberg screens as I am. Um, they're going to be watching to see whether or not there is any easing in inflation pressures. If there is, I think that they can just take a pause in that rate hiking cycle. Um, but I have heard a lot of people thinking that we are going to have rate cuts towards the end of this year. We're not in that camp that we're expecting the Fed to turn so quickly. We think that they're more likely to take a pause in terms of the rate hikes. And potentially, you know, there's been a lot of quantitative tightening in the market, and we're starting to see some of that ease. Katrina, if that's the case, how do you play it through a market that is priced in almost 100 basis points of rate cuts by the beginning of next year? Um, in terms of how we play it, we just think you need to take a step back. And I think that that's the benefit of being a long-term investor, that ability to take a step back and have a look. Um, I think that we were very concerned that the, you know, the banking crisis and the increase in rates would really impact those small and mid-sized companies. And we've talked in the past about the industrial sector, and we talk about the three legs to that investment thesis. We look at the legislation that's positive, and that's still in place. We look Look at some of those structural drivers, electrification, for example, IoT is another. But the third leg was that you know, supplier base that needed financing in order to expand. And we've actually seen customers step in, step into right. the place of the certainty that you normally get from the financial sector. So we're actually continuing to be very, very positive on the industrial sector demand because that third leg of the stool continues to be strong. Katrina, i got 30 seconds left. I'm, I'm sorry for this. It deserves a much longer amount of time. Bernard Baruch once said, by straw hats in winter, I'm seeing images of Paris in revolt. I'm seeing talk about a collapse of the Fifth Republic, of Macron, maybe even a reformation of a new republic, a Sixth Republic. Can you go long France here, given all the turmoil? 
I think that what you need to understand is what has happened in each of these markets. Look at their response to the energy crisis because you know, they st stepped into the market to support that low-end consumer and it's those consumers that are going to remember that and that's where the popular pressure really comes, that populist pressure which really looks at you know, these markets fragmenting. I think that that argument is really has gone out right. the window. We think that Europe's stays together, and that is positive for all those markets in Europe. Katrina, thank you for helping us start the show this morning. Katrina Dudley here with Franklin Mutual. Joining us now with Jenny Montgomery Scott is Christopher Marinak. He is in banking research, an important voice to speak to at this time. Uh, let's just start with first principles in the moment, Christopher. Is the crisis over? I think we're getting to the end. Uh, the two troubled banks have been resolved, and I think now we see um, resolution from both Signature Bank last week and yesterday with First Citizens buying the Silicon Valley. So I think we have to get to the end of the quarter on Friday, but I feel like we are on the road to recovery, and I think when earnings are announced uh, in a few weeks in mid-April, you're going to see much better results and much better deposit flows than uh, most investors have understood the last few weeks. I, I guess I've got to go to deposit flows right now. We're going to get more reporting on that. One of the themes out there is, well, at 5%, forgetting about bank crisis, money's going to move to money market funds. Do you agree? Well, we've seen money market mutual funds move uh, $250 billion the last two weeks, if you look at the Thursday reporting. So clearly, there has been some movement. But I think in the big picture, Tom, there's, I think, a lot less deposit outflow in the system. It's only 4.5% if you look at the Fed right. data last Friday night. So it's more muted. And I think we've been normalizing deposits all along. It just has felt a lot worse the past few weeks. You know, I'm, I'm going to use the Jenny Montgomery Scott history here of Philadelphia, and you go out to traditional banking outside Philadelphia, and that's a place where it would be like anywhere in America. What I detect here is banking by marketing concept. When you talk to bankers who are like normal people, how do they feel about marketing concept-driven ideas intruding in this crisis on their normal banking? Well, to most customers, they're looking for service. They're looking for more than just interest rate. If interest rate was the only thing, then I think we would have seen the bank deposit costs rise a lot faster the, the previous uh, four or five quarters. It's been a very slow increase of deposit rates. I think we are going to see a meaningful impact in higher rates in Q1 and Q2. But in my opinion, it's a much more muted response. Customers want uh, safety and surety, and they also want advice. So it's not always about interest rate. That's the dog barking in the background just in case you knew, you knew that his name is chipper i was After wondering chipper jones i was wondering you know, if chipper was having chipper, serious concerns chipper's about barking the, uh, this morning. he's, he's having okay. he's having angst about the uh, <clears throat> banking system the, i am wondering the braves have beat the red sox like four <laughs> times in spring training just so you know thank you tom christopher i am curious there's there's this uh, article by muhammad alarian on bloomberg opinion i keep going back to it because it really highlights this one aspect that people are honing in on even if we don't get some collapse in financial system or another bank, there still is going to be a grinding, tightening, a sort of acceleration in how much some of these regional banks withdraw some of their credit. How much are you tracking that? How much do you believe that narrative? 
Well, I think that credit always gets tightened in a crisis like this. We saw it in 2008 and 2009. I think banks are going to be very discerning on the new loans they make. There's a lot of pipeline uh, lending that was done in January and February, and I'm sure it, it became a lot tighter the last three weeks. So as we head into second and third quarter, I think new loans will be uh, very much uh, uh, lower. And if anything, you're going to see much higher rates. I think one of the mysteries is that um, bank loan rates are going to be a lot higher. Banks are going to charge more for risk. And that actually is going to be a benefit, and it will offset some of the higher uh, deposit rates that we see. But I think your question is a good one, and ultimately, credit is getting tighter. So in other words, just to sort of frame this a little more starkly, could we see banks survive and even thrive, especially if they're consolidating business, at the same time that you see a more dramatic constriction in overall growth in the U.S.? Well, I think dramatic might be the, uh, the the thing I would disagree with. I think it's going to be incrementally slower. Um, banks are still in the business of taking risk and, and making a discerning uh, vote of confidence for their customers. I think leverage overall is so much lower today than it was 15 years ago. We see a lot of banks lending at 65 to 70 cents on the dollar when they used to lend on 90 to 100, and then the, uh, the properties were coming down in value significantly. So we have less leverage in the system, and I think ultimately that's a key to what banks uh, write off and their problems. So I think credit does get tighter for sure, but I don't think it's impossible. And I think if anything, banks are here for businesses that they wish to support. He is the companies uh, I think who are in good financial position can continue to move forward and those who cannot will struggle. So, you know, we do expect to see higher levels of credit issues as this year and next year unfold. One of the big questions uh, in the past couple of weeks is how much of a risk premium will be charged for some of the smaller and regional banks that could suffer deposit outflows in a way that the large banks just can't. How much is that going to be a lasting feature that basically uh, the valuation story is going to be more disparate going forward of the behemoths versus the regionals? I think the regionals and even the smaller community banks are going to do quite well. We think the deposit outflow theme has been incorrect. And I think as the data has shown for March 31st, you'll see a lot less outflows than uh, folks have understood. I also think you're going to see a lot more clarity about the level of granularity of deposits at these smaller and mid-sized banks. So I actually think it's an opportunity for them to really open the kimono, give a lot more disclosure on deposits, the lack of deposit concentration. Uh, that's going to be a huge difference when we see earnings come out in a few weeks. Chris, the Wall Street Journal editorial lays out the first, whatever it is, the bank that went up 45% yesterday. They're taking out, it's First Citizens, they're taking out SVB. How do the banks you follow, Chris Marinette, compete with a bank that has a massive support, gains, losses, deposit coverage, et cetera, deposit flight? How do other banks compete with someone so aided by the government of the United States of America? Well, the reality is a lot of it comes down to individual relationships with bankers. And so you can have a, a lot of government aid for a given bank and a support at a moment in time, but it really doesn't have anything to do with the individual relationships and the advice that's given at banks. I think a lot of commercial businesses see a bank as a trusted advisor in addition to their attorney, in addition to their accountant. So I don't think that the government aid has much to do with right. that. I think, if anything, it's going to be an ongoing uh, uh, conversation about what those customers need and ultimately what they need to grow their business. I think businesses are slowing down as a result of this crisis this month, and that goes back to the credit tightening uh, that is out there. I think there's a decision by many businesses to not increase their factories and increase their workers uh, incrementally, just given what they've seen. Hugely valuable. Christopher Marinak, thank you so much. Jenny Montgomery Scott there this morning. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? 
look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Joining us now, Victoria Fernandez, whose major charm is she's not on the island of Manhattan. She is out there and across the rest of America. <laughs> also on with us because I have a final zero, and she's actually, I think she had one or two of the final four picked out, so she's our resident <laughs> genius uh, for March. Victoria Fernandez, I'm going to cut to the chase. There is a banking crisis, and it plays differently among the financial centers than it does across Texas and the rest of this country. Tell us how the financial crisis, the banking crisis, rather, that we're in now, adjusts the strategies of Crossmark Global Investments. Yeah, well, first of all, I'm going to say, unfortunately, my Cougars are no longer in the final there four, but that's okay. We'll go, we'll go from there. Um, when we look at what's going on in the banking sector, we have to say, wait, all of this has tightened financial conditions. That's the key point that we're looking at right here. So when you have tighter financial conditions, which the Fed has been trying to do for such a long period of time and has not been very successful at it, the banking crisis did it pretty quickly. People are saying, depending on what analyst you talk to, it could be anywhere from 25 to 100 basis points um, of rate hikes that they have seen because of the crisis that's kind of now built in. Here's what we have to watch with that. When you have tighter financial conditions, you guys were talking about the smaller banks that are out there. Let's look at the senior loan officer survey that comes out in a couple of weeks and see what is happening with lending. It's probably coming down. That's going to affect M2 growth. It's going to affect economic activity. That flows through to earnings because pricing power is gone. Margins are going to get hit. And that then flows through to the labor market. This is the progress that the Fed is watching. They want to see this happen. And right. so I think this is, fits into their story. <clears throat> but, Tom, here's the thing. That can change pretty quickly if the data changes. So how do you change equity allocation? I mean, the charm of Crossmark is you're working with real people, with real money. Everybody, including me, is real scared about some of the banking news that we see. Given some level of new restriction or super restriction, how do you change your equity allocation? Yeah, well, John's not there today, so I guess we can talk about the Dow a little bit. There um, are. Just continue. 
<laughs> we've seen the Dow down year to date, but we've seen the NASDAQ and the S&P higher because of the big um, turnover, people going into those tech stocks. What we're actually doing at Crossmark is trimming some of those tech stocks because they've had this run and we don't anticipate we're going to continue to see it because we don't think rates are going to continue to fall right here. We think we're going to see them turn around. We continue to look at quality names, names with strong balance sheets, names with good business models. That's what we're focusing on. We have some cyclical. We have a little bit of growth in there, too, but some of those value names. It's when we hit the recession, which previously we would have said that was later in the year. Now we're looking more summertime. That's when you're going to start to go a little bit growthier. That's when you're going to start to look at maybe the lower quality names that tend to do better once we right. hit a sustained recovery. What are the quote-unquote lower quality names in the Dow Jones industrial average? Well, I think you just have to look at some of the names. Some of these that have been really hard hit, we're looking at names that do the opposite of what we were just talking about, that typically don't have the strongest balance sheets. Their earnings are not the strongest there. I'm not going to give specific names on those because we're not buying them right now. So compliance would be a little, uh, have an issue yeah, with Yeah, but nobody's here. watching. But, Continue. Yeah. Exactly. So you can't do that. I will say names that we have been adding a little bit to JP Morgan because of what's happened there and their valuations look strong. Some of the more stable names that we have in there and healthcare names will come out of those and go into some of the other names. Um, you know, looking at the more cyclical growth names once we hit a recession, looking at middle of the year. Victoria, if the Fed cuts rates, do you get more bullish on risk assets? Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's an interesting question because it, it depends why we're seeing rates being cut. If we're seeing rates cut because we anticipate a recession, we're going to wait a little bit longer. If we're actually in a recession and we're cutting rates and it's the start of a new sustained bull market, then yes, then I think you can do some risk assets. You don't want to go into those names until we get to the recession. You don't get your bottom in your market before that. So we need to wait and see that. We're not particularly saying 100% we've already seen the bottom in the market. So we're still being cautious, biding our time a little bit. I'd rather be a little late to the party than get there early and not have anything there. Just quickly, Victoria, what's the best hedge right now against a potentially higher inflation environment for longer? Well, look, you're asking a bond girl this question. And so I'm going to tell you, you need to have that diversification in your portfolio by adding some fixed income. And don't just add short term fixed income because you're setting yourself up for interest or for reinvestment risk once those bonds mature. Mm -hmm. Do a barbell strategy, add some fixed income, and then the equity, right. add some of those claims. Bond girl, with 30 seconds here, United Healthcare with that ginormous bond deal. It takes them out to 11%, 12% debt, which many people in the textbooks would stay still under debted. United Healthcare in the last 10 years is up 25.6% per year. That's their stock. Are we going to see a ton of issuances by the quality names of the Dow Jones Industrial Average? I wouldn't be surprised if we did, Tom, especially if people anticipate that rates are going to go a little bit higher. If they believe the central banks that there's more work to do, then we could see some issuance come in and lock in some of the lower rates that they have right now. Victoria, thank you so much. Victoria Fernandez there, Crossmark Global Investments. To give us a perspective now, our definitive expert on China, Stephen Engel, in his very late evening in Hong Kong. Stephen Engel, I want to go beyond the headlines here, just to your perspective on the government, 
on Mr. Xi and on Jack Ma. Is Jack Ma still part of a new six-unit Alibaba? Yes and no. He is the face, obviously, is the founder, co-founder of Alibaba. <laughs> and I love this story that you just talked about, about meeting Jack Ma. I've met him many times over my 20 years at Bloomberg and 32 years now in Asia Pacific. And he always talked kind of not nonchalantly, but a, a bit of a chest puffed out about regulation and that how he had to stay ahead of the regulators. Well, obviously the regulators caught up with him in October or thereabouts of 2020, scuppering that uh, big, um, you know, multi-universe <laughs> IPO for Ant Financial. Uh, and since then, the, the company has been absolutely obliterated, going from, uh, I'm not talking about Ant, Ant's been sidelined, absolutely, uh, but Alibaba has gone from an 800 billion valued company down to about 220 billion. So now they're, they're, they're going to not break up, but they're going to kind of be reshuffled. Is this at government order? We don't know. Is it going to unlock more value than the pre-breakup, if you will, or pre, excuse me, pre-ant breakup? We don't know yet. A lot of questions to be answered. There is, though, uh, one clear underlining feature here, which is government intervention in businesses that used to be the darlings of the nation, this person who used to be Steve Jobs, but even much more so in terms of the reception that he would get on stage and in these sort of rock star events that he would hold. Stephen, what does this say in terms of the climate right now and how quickly it is changing in modern China? Well, the, the government's trying to say all the right things. Keep in mind, they're having the China Development Forum. In fact, in Beijing right now at the Daoyutai State Guesthouse, just wrapped up today, Tim Cook is there, Ray Dalio and a few others. But a number of big name U.S. CEOs kind of stayed away, uh, not necessarily wanting the blowback in the United States because of the relationship troubles between China and the United States. But then they're going to have their World Economic-like Forum called the Boao Forum that started today as well down in Hainan Island. They're trying to make the sales pitch back uh, to skeptical global investors after three punishing years of COVID zero, as well these regulatory, simultaneous regulatory crackdowns on the platform economy, on the private sector, on property, on online gaming, on so many sectors of the economy all at once. Uh, they're talking up the private sector. The government wants to support the private sector. But again, we've kind of rolled our eyes a little bit because we get tired of the narrative for three straight years of saying they want to do this and then acting differently. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a little bit of caution on this. The market likes this right now. They think this is an opportunity to, to reinvigorate and get that entrepreneurial spirit back into a behemoth, which was a behemoth, Alibaba but it's been dwindled down by regulation as well as largesse. Stephen, what is the public reception to the intervention of the Communist Party of China in some of these previously much heralded companies that represented the mainland? I think there's a lot of frustration. That's anecdotal. I mean, I do talk to my sources in mainland China. There's, there's, there is a bit of frustration. Few people will go on record to say there's frustration, but there's been a, a, a power grab, if you will, at the top of, uh, you know, leader, uh, echelon of leadership there with, with Xi Jinping almost becoming absolute ruler with his uh, loyalists as his deputies. So there's some speculation or some, uh, you know, skepticism, if you will, uh, that the good old days, perhaps for the private sector, uh, are, are past <clears throat> them. But again, 
we, we, we just don't know, Tom. Stephen, what's so important here, and to use your years and years of expertise, behind those red doors in Beijing, they're obviously recalibrating after the political moment of November, after the, the coronation, if you will, of moving Mr. Xi forward. And then the reality is we're hearing reports from Bloomberg News and others that the Belt and Road Initiative, to be polite, is struggling. How successful yeah. right now is their business, is their finance, is the Chinese capitalistic experience? It's struggling, obviously, coming out of three years of COVID zero that really decimated confidence. It decimated investment coming into China. It, it, it perhaps also harmed in a more, you know, tangible way, the confidence that right. others have in China. So the Belt and Road Initiative has turned into what some would say is debt diplomacy in some countries that are having some debt issues, obviously. So <clears throat> the jury's still out on the Belt and Road, for sure. Stephen, one final question, if I may, with great respect for your years of service in Hong Kong. Is Hong Kong, the new Hong Kong, is it open for business? It seems like it's open for business, and they're sure doing everything that they can. And we'll have to see as well whether the IPO market is going to rekindle confidence in Hong Kong as well. And that's one interesting thing. I'll come full circle on the Alibaba story. Those six individual units, Daniel Zhang, the CEO, says each one of those six individual units will be able to do their own fundraising. And if that means IPO, that means IPO. It's going to be up to the heads of those individual divisions. That could, because no restructuring like this would would come without the blessing of the central government in Beijing. So this mean, could mean that IPOs could be coming back to Hong Kong. Our Stephen Engel from Hong Kong. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, Tune in and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.